Hi everyone, this is Victoria Stapleton. I'm the Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers, and you're listening to the Little Brown School and Library Marketing Podcast. Usually I begin by saying how excessively pleased and egregiously delighted and super fantastically, you know, some other positive adjective about the episode we're about to record. Today, um, I am pleased and I am positively energized about this conversation, but it is a serious conversation about, I think, one of the most important books that LBYR will publish in 2021. And we have been on a streak of publishing what I think are some very important books for children and teens, for example, Stamped and Stamped for Kids, as well as Consent for Kids. I think these have been important books. And we've been publishing people like Jewel Parker Rhodes and Andre Davis Pinckney and these important conversations that they've been bringing to young readers. But this conversation is with Marcy Colleen. She is uh, an author of picture books and, and other types of books. And she has written Survivor Tree. For those of you who were in New York City or near New York City on September 11th, 2001, you will know how sensitive this conversation is. But Marcy has written a text that is sublime in that it comes close to expressing the impact of that cerulean blue sky and what happened on that morning. And it is paired by a series of transcendent images created by Caldecott honor winner Aaron Becker. So we're going to spend some time in the um, enclosed safe space of the podcasting booth to discuss Survivor Tree. It is a world in which adults are haunted by this day and children are haunted as well, though they do not know why. And Marcy's book will help families and libraries and classrooms and communities muddle through why. Welcome, Marcy. Ah, thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. This does feel like a an incredibly important book, and it feels like the most important thing that I've written. Um, I often say that some of the books that I write are love letters, uh, especially love letters to New York City, which is a city that will always have my heart, even though I don't live there currently. Um, but this especially feels like the book that I was supposed to write for um, New York and, and for us all. It's hard for those who were not here that day or, and by here, I mean, not just New York, you were in Jersey city, I think. And then there were people um, who were in Westchester. There were people, you know, New York is a very large place. There are commuters who come uh, from many miles around uh, who gather here and, and, and of all the people here. And, and the world we live in now is so much shaped by that day and by its, by its aftermath. But it was also one in a series of events in New York that sort of, it was always interesting to me that there's this day, but there were several days and events before that, um, that this sort of was, I don't, I don't want to say it's a breaking point, but we were not changed by what happened in 2003. Mm, and mm -hmm. We were not changed by what happened in 2008. 
uh, with the financial meltdown, but we were changed by what happened in 2001. And I think it's, this book is a very valuable emotional exploration of the impact of that moment. 9-11 is, I think, probably the most significant date in U.S. history in the 21st century. And, I mean, really, you are writing for an audience that did, were not alive. They were not alive when it happened, but they live in the world that was created by this event. And what was meaningful for you to bring to this story for these very young readers and listeners who have been shaped by this? Mm. Well, I go into this in my author's note, um, but I, I was a classroom teacher on September 11th. Mm-hmm. I actually was in Syracuse, New York, which is where I am originally from, um, even though it is about four my, or four hours um, into the state of New York, we had that exact same blue sky that day that um, will forever haunt those of us who experienced that. I found myself that day, first of all, just to preface it, I was in the process of moving to New York City. Mm-hmm. I was in the process of looking for an apartment, looking for a job. I wanted out of the classroom. I was looking to start my master's degree at NYU. And so I was very New York-centered and New York-focused at that point. I was a classroom teacher in a high school. I, I just remember walking into the teacher's lounge after having taught the first period of the day, and one of the teachers said to me, um, a plane has hit the World Trade Center. And of course, like so many people, I thought, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. What, what, is, what is this? And of course, then quickly learned of the impact of what was going on. Our, our school decided that it was important to keep kids in the classroom and it was important to keep, you know, we all wanted to go home that day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were like, no, we all need to be in school. But pretty much the lessons of the day were put aside and it was more of experiencing this historical tragedy. Um, and I found myself in the classroom facing kids who there were about 35 of my students, my high school students, and many of them did not, had never been to New York City, didn't know how far it was, you know, had, for them, they were watching this on television. For me, it was watching my second home on TV, dealing with such horrific Um, events. And uh, I had these kids looking at me and asking me questions and expecting me as the teacher to be able to answer their questions. Mm -hmm. And I was at a part in a point in my life. I mean, I was, was 20 years ago, so I was fairly young. And I remember thinking that I had to have the answers, that there was things that I had to answer. And when I couldn't answer them, I would feel this sense of pressure and overwhelm, not only through what I was personally experiencing with what the nation was going through, but also this feeling of um, pressure that I did not know what was going on. And in truthfully, I think there are many things that I have learned that we go through in life that are unfathomable, that we all look at like wide-eyed children. We don't know the answers. We, we, we try to make sense of it all. And so when we're, we're hit with a tragedy such as September 11th, I think the playing field is really leveled and we're all children at that point. And so this book in writing it was very much 
for those students that were in my class 20 years ago, but it was for myself also that what is a way that I can try to make this a little bit more digestible, a little bit more accessible, a little bit more just concrete, I, I don't know, to try to make sense of it all. And so I wrote it for myself as much as I wrote it for anybody else. I think that having my, my husband and I left New York City in 2015, reluctantly, I should add, um, we both missed the city terribly, but we now live in Southern California. And I think that even though I had the idea to write this story when I was in New York, I very much needed the distance of living 3,000 miles away to be able to really access everything that I had experienced um, around September 11th and to just kind of find a way of writing a story that we would all be able to um, read and hopefully connect with and maybe not find an answer, but find just a little bit of hope. And for young readers, especially who are not alive, just sort of being able to help them understand the emotions mm. that their parents may be experiencing of this, um, of these memories and of thinking about this time, or just each of us who went th through this have a thing. We don't need to go into the details, but everybody who experienced it directly has a thing about that day um, that children may experience from their parents but not understand why that is. And I think mm. this book is a way of, provides a way of accessing those emotions. I'm going to read a sequence, if I may. Glossy green leaves announced the arrival of summer, casting polka dot shade on the sidewalk. In fall, the tree blazed red with a million hearts before each took off in an elegant dance. And so it went for almost 30 years. Winter, spring, summer, fall. Bare, white, green, red. Winter, spring, summer, fall. I wish readers could see the image that we're looking at at this moment. You've structured the story around a tree that was in the park of the World Trade Center. You've set up the story with Aaron Becker to see people passing by. They're not paying attention to the tree or maybe casting it a side glance. They're shopping, they're meeting friends, they're going to the Statue of Liberty and all of these things until that day, why was it important for you to pick this tree or a tree to enter into the story? Mm. This tree picked me, Victoria. This tree has been, I believe, flirting with me for a very long time. So before I moved to the city, um, my brother moved to the city shortly after um, around uh, in 93, shortly after the first um, bombing at the World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. And my brother worked down in the World Financial District. And every single day when um, I would go visit him, I would, you know, he lived in Jersey City and I would take the PATH train over to the World Trade Center and I would meet him for lunch. And we would always 
lunch, and then take a walk around the World Trade Center Plaza. That felt like such a home to me, that mm-hmm. area of the city, both in the um, the mall that was underneath the World Trade Center, and then also the surrounding areas. And it became kind of like a place where I always went to get transportation, to meet my brother, to get a bite to eat, you know, and, and so I know that, first of all, I've seen this tree a zillion times. I know that this tree and I have had a relationship for mm-hmm. decades. Fast forward to an op-ed that was in the New York Times. I'm not even quite sure what year that was, uh, maybe 2013, 2014, maybe, there was a documentary that came out called The Trees that was all about the trees that were going to be planted in the World Trade Center, um, the, the memorial. And that's where I learned about the survivor tree. And I was so struck by its story. I had never, I, I had lived in New York City for a decade and I had never, ever gone down to the World Trade Center site unless I you know, kept my eyes down. And I certainly wouldn't go visit the memorial. I wouldn't go to the museum. I was just like, nope, don't, don't feel like doing that. Mm -hmm. So like so many New Yorkers, I didn't even know that the survivor tree existed. I mean, tourists know when they go to the the memorial or somebody goes to pay respects at the memorial, they see the, the survivor tree is right there center, like allowing people to take it in. And I didn't know about it until I read about it in the New York times. And, uh, I couldn't shake the story. I needed to tell mm-hmm. the story. It was like, mm-hmm. this story needs to be told. Fast forward to living here in San Diego. And I had a very good writing friend who was visiting. And we were sitting in Balboa Park, which is right up the street from my apartment. And she asked me what I was writing, what I was working on. And so I was sharing with her some of my ideas for works in progress. And then I said to her, you know, there's this story about this tree. And I told her the whole story from beginning, middle, and end of this this survivor tree. And she said, you know, you have to write this story. And I said, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can. I feel still so raw with the mm. events of September 11th. I don't know if I can tell this story. Her and I finished our lunch in Balboa Park, and I started walking her back to where she was going to get her ride. And I'm not kidding, Victoria. I looked to the left of me. And all of a sudden, I see a flowering calorie pear tree standing right next to me. Now, the calorie pear tree is the tree of the survivor tree. And it had these beautiful white flowers. And I looked at it and I said to my friend, Betsy, this is the tree. This is the kind of tree. I haven't seen one since I left New York City. Oh, my goodness. And she was like, it's a sign. You have to write it. So... Later on that day, I'm taking a walk with my husband in Balboa Park, and it's dark. And I'm sharing with him this conversation that I had with my friend and how she was telling me that I needed to write the story. We had walked in this park for, you know, weeks, months, however long we had lived here. Every single night, we would take a walk into Mm -hmm. Balboa Park, and we would walk the exact same way. And we passed a little tree that I noticed with Betsy. And I was like, oh, my goodness, look, this is the tree. And then as soon as I finish telling him the story, we get to this one turnaround part. We turn around for as far as the eye can see our flowering white calorie pear trees. And I had never noticed them before. It was like they had been there this whole time. But it was like the tree was saying, yes, I am affirming you need to tell this story. Also, the first time that that passage that you read was the part about the 
the tree blazing with a million hearts in the fall. I was walking down the steps of a museum in Balboa Park, and I was struck by a heart-shaped red leaf that was just sitting on the steps of the museum that I was coming out of. And I found out that that was a calorie pear tree leaf. And it just... It just, I felt like this tree just kept calling to me. And so, as I mentioned in my author's note, after I finally had the manuscript to the point where, in fact, I think the manuscript was out on submission with publishing houses, I decided to take a trip down to the memorial and to sit on a bench near the tree. And I read the manuscript out loud to the tree. And I just touched its bark right where its scars are. And I said, I'm going to tell your story. And I just feel like this tree has, it, it's, it was calling to me, you know? I mean, it sounds always so, you know, weird and woo-woo when artists say things like that. But this tree very much, it flirted with me. It, it was supposed to be a book that I was supposed to write. And I'm glad that I listened to it. I love that answer. Um, the, one of the things I'm struck by the text of this book is, as well as the images. I mean, I think people are going to see this book first and be astounded by the images, but really underneath the text and the pacing of it is so beautiful and gentle where it needs to be, but piercing where it needs to be. And I think that's because you've really tapped in to the very large, deep, salty ocean of feeling that is about this day and is about, it is about this event. Um, one of my very favorite authors is Roby Harris. Love her to death. Uh, and oddly, and a lot of people know her from It's Perfectly Normal, one of the most stolen books in the United States. Come on, people. But uh, a book she did for us that I always loved was Male Harry to the Moon, which is about uh, a child who gets a younger sibling and is not excited about it and doesn't know how to deal with their feelings. And one of Roby's great gifts is she knows very well that children have, in the all caps, very large feelings. And not all of them are positive feelings. And a lot of times these feelings are so large and, and so powerful inside them that a lot of time they do not have a lot of words to express those feelings. Um, and I think this event, uh, September 11th, is one of those places you spoke about childhood before where adults who experienced it have such very, all caps, very large feelings and not a lot of words to work through that. Even within a 32-page picture book, <laughs> and the, each page is filled with beautiful art and this very spare, elegant text, there's not a lot of words here that you've used to work through these feelings. How did you choose the words that ended up on the pages of this book? And, and did you think about how these words would be paced out? along the book. Um, you mentioned, you know, manuscript on submission. Not every picture book writer says, I want it to be these words on this page, these words on this page, these words on this page, but some do. I can't remember in your case when we read it, but did you think about, in addition to the specific words, how they would be paced? 
how this would be structured so that you could really get to that deep, salty ocean. My, my style of writing is sparse. I love sparse words that are filled with so much emotion and so much life, um, even though there is very little on the page. And I knew right away that, that this needed to be, even though it was nonfiction, even though there was going to be um, a lot that needed to be said in back matter about the true story of this tree that I wanted this, I wanted it to be lyrical. I wanted it to be sparse, which was one of the things that held me back from knowing if I could write this story because mm-hmm. A, I had the ocean of emotions going on in me, not knowing if I was going to be able to pull this off. And then also I don't consider myself a poet. And so I was grappling with, do I have the words? First of all, as far as the pacing is concerned, one of the things that you run the risk of when writing a very sparse text is that it takes a millisecond to read it. And this was definitely a book that called for slower pacing, reflection, moments to pause. Mm -hmm. Um, If you, if, you know, I want to liken it to the World Trade Center September 11th Memorial, where it's very quiet in that space. And there's there's plenty of room to just stand and reflect and pause. One of the ways that I was able to achieve that in manuscript without, you know, paginating it out for the reader was that I, I wrote it very much like a poem. And I kind of spaced it so that it would be assumed that a stanza would be, you know, the entire page. And for that piece that you read earlier, you know, fall, which was um, a word that I chose not only for the season, but Mm -hmm. also for the depiction of what happened to the World Trade Center on that day. Um, I set that apart as just its own line, you know, dot, 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 fall. Mm -hmm. And, um, Aaron and designers and the fabulous team at Little Brown picked up on all of that. But another way that was important for me to slow it down was the refrain, which you have already read. It was it was important to me because, A, it, it showed the passage of time, but it slowly showed the passage of time. And it took you through this life cycle that was repeating every single year. Um, taking you through the beauty of the tree in each season. And then also with the fall being September 11th, it it shows that interruption. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to include that refrain as a way of slowing down, taking time to reflect, watch this tree grow in front of your eyes as you move through the story. I chose colors and seasons Mainly because, you know, seasons are cyclical, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're, you know, there will always be another spring, there will always be another summer after the spring kind of a thing, maybe not for us individually, but mm-hmm. the life goes on, you know, we've all been grappling with um, immense loss and pain this past year. And, um, you know, but spring still came this year. And the flowers still bloomed and the color still returned. I think about the actual event of September 11th and how, you know, we all talk about this beautiful, vivid blue sky, but how quickly that was blotted out with just gray. 
and you could not see a single bit of color anywhere. People were gray. The ground was gray. The sky was gray. Everything was gray. And it really did feel like color might never return. And in fact, there were conversations that happened even weeks after September 11th, where we wondered if, if Saturday Night Live should ever come on the air again, because will we ever be able to laugh in New York City? Will we ever be able to, you know, listen to certain songs and, and, and find joy in certain aspects of life? And so the seasons and colors, the colorful display of this tree are things that kids can relate to. Kids know seasons, mm -hmm. kids know colors. It was a connection to bring kids in to the life of this tree and to this tragedy. And then, you know, as far as um, my own personal connection, I began to see the tree as a child who had lost these towers that had always sheltered it on mm. either side. Um, when I was writing the book, we were in the process of losing my sister-in-law who was leaving behind two young children. And that very much, that event, in, a, in addition to my own personal experience with September 11th, um, very much connected me to the tree. It's just the whole idea of loss and grief and moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I was just talking to Aaron Becker about this recently, about that, the page where I say the tree hesitated to fill the empty sky. And I just think about how this tree had always had the towers in its sky. And suddenly the sky feels huge down there. And what do you do when the sky feels huge? You know, there, there, were, there were other events that, you know, I was able to pull in to access that emotion for this story. And now, you know, given the year that we've all experienced globally, Somebody said to me, and I can't remember who it was, but they said, do you realize that by the time Survivor Tree publishes, there will not be a single person on this earth who is not a survivor of something huge? And it's so true. We are all survivors. So I feel like this book has gotten to the point where it's the story of the tree doesn't only depict September 11th, but it transcends to loss and grief. In general, I'm, I lost my father in February to COVID, and um, I now feel like I was telling my therapist this. She's heard me talk for years about this book and how am I going to promote, so, you know, this survivor tree and all of this emotion that go these big emotions that go on even in an adult. And uh, I said to her, I feel like 2018 Marcy, who wrote this book and, and sold it to Little Brown kind of wrote this book for 2021 Marcy, who's grappling with the loss of her father. And I now feel like I understand this tree just a little bit more than I did when I first wrote it. I was the kid who, you know, had the big emotions. I was the kid who would stifle the tears when I was watching Fox and the Hound or some other <laughs> Disney movie that would scar me and then sit up in my room and bawl because I was so affected by it. I mean, I often say it's because I'm an empath, but I mean, I, I had big emotions and they were hard to name and they were hard to grapple with. And uh, I grew into a person who is an adult in her mid forties who still is exactly like that. Yeah. So this, this book, I feel like 
is is written for me as well as my young readers. I so love that you have discussed this book in terms of your own healing uh, and that you've referenced this this line of the book, the tree hesitated to fill the empty sky. The tree does not need to fill the empty sky. The tree just needs to be the tree. And I feel about this book that it is a memory and a witness and a gentle encouragement that however we fill the next days, our winter, spring, summer, fall, that if we share with each other those big, giant feelings, that deep, salty ocean, we'll get through it. Gentle listeners through the virtual universe, Marcy and I are going to go cry a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Survivor Tree, written, invoked, I should say by Marcy Colleen and illustrator Aaron Becker, should be on your shelf and with your family now. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.